Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and South Asian Studies, hosted by Tara Anjaria out of Bombay, India. Last week was all about the ruling elite and the settings they created and lived in. Today we bring you a post from the periphery, Northeast India to be exact. Before we get down to the interview, a few words about what is called Northeast India. This means in the parlance of the Republic of India, the states of Assam, Arunachal Pradesh, Mizoram, Meghalaya, Manipur, Nagaland, Tripura, with the former kingdom of Sikkim often included as well, sprawling over 260,000 square kilometers, with a population of over 39 million, speaking over 400 languages and dialects. Literacy rates here are some of the highest in India. The biggest city is Gauhati in Assam. Our guest is Marcus Frank. He will talk to us today about his book, War and Nationalism in South Asia, The Indian State and the Nagas. Hello. Hello. Uh, Good afternoon, Marcus. Good afternoon, Dara. Uh, Thank you for doing this for the New Books Network, and it's a pleasure having you on board. Well, the pleasure is mine, of course. (laughs) Well, I think it works both ways. But uh, this is certainly an amazing book, you know, and it's obviously not very common. I mean, you don't have too many people researching, well, Northeast India. So could you just tell us how you came to be interested in the region, I mean, in your academic career leading up to the writing of the book? Yeah, I started studying anthropology and political science of South Asia and modern Indian languages uh, at the University of Heidelberg at the uh, South Asian Institute there. That was, I started this uh, right from the beginning. And I was always at Heidelberg in the beginning. You could uh, study South Asia and Southeast Asia together. So the Naga Hills, so the area of um, Northeast India, culturally more uh, Southeast Asian, politically nowadays South Asian, is, when when you uh, think about it, a natural choice. And there also my interest between anthropology and political science. So um, I was in anthropology. I was especially interested in in the uh, subdivision of, of historical anthropology. And in in politics and in political history, and in, in in wars of resistance and so on. So I that is why I uh, chose the topic of wars, and then uh, because of the area of the Naga war or wars, if you consider them as two wars, the British and the Indian War, as as topic first for my master thesis. When I then chose my master's thesis, which I back then did in, uh, in anthropology, I realized that there was, 
and using all the reading, all the secondary literature that was available to me, I realized that there was no substantial verb uh, done yet about this war. The only newer literature was propagating rather fashionable theories that somehow either denied the voice there completely or blamed the Nagas uh, for the wars because uh, they were influenced by missionaries or or British uh, colonialists. That was the post-colonial constructionist theory that made the victims responsible for their own victimhood. And or or the uh, political science writers' prevalent argument that uh, it was irrelevant what was happening at the periphery because the benefits at the center were so big that even if the periphery were under military rule, that was uh, not important at all. So because of all these factors, you know, my my, my first interest in that region because of it was politically South Asia, it was uh, culturally Southeast Asian. It uh, had certain, let's say, violent conflicts there, and the literature as such was so of such a bad quality, or it's of such a bad quality that one could uh, easily make a difference, or easily, yes, one could easily make a difference, which is, as you know, not um, always the case uh, in science, in social science. I, I after my um, MA thesis, or, or, or when working on my MA thesis, I worked as a translator for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Kashmir, and while doing that, I was reading um, literature on the war there, and there is quite some good books existing about that, as well about Punjab, or when you go to Sri Lanka, there's all the good literature existing, but that is not the case for the Nagas. And that was pretty much when I was then asked to uh, whether I would like to, to get a scholarship to uh, do a PhD research. I said yes under the condition that I could choose the Narga war to, um, to write about. So that was principle, that was basically the genesis of how it came about that I wrote about the Nargas. Um, so could you tell us something about how your research unfolded? I mean, your PhD research. Yeah. That was, I, I I, um, <coughs> for my MA, I already had started to work on theories of state formation, of nationalism, of war, of ethnicity and ethnogenesis, and, and had read, as I said before, nearly all the secondary sources on the Naga case. So what I, what I then, then thought is, if I want to find out something new, I, I have to put that all aside. So I went into the, uh, mostly into the British Library more than a year. I gathered also material from somewhere else, but mostly inside the British Library. And, and looked for all the, the files, the papers, hand 
some information about the area that nowadays not as a living in. So I searched via this, I searched also for new material, which was not mentioned somewhere else, which had not been So, and with, with that material, with that historical primary material, I built first on more or less, more or less uncategorized historical narrative. And this historical narrative, then I started to, well, I wrote first, I first collected for for a year uh, primary material. Then I, I wrote a rough historical narrative only with this primary material. And then I tried to see what had happened in relation to who was the political agent or who were the main political agents and, and then who was then fighting uh, when and why. Uh, because the, the ultimate aim was, was also to find out uh, why this fighting was going on and, and whether this fighting was always the same fighting or whether it was a different fight. So, and with that, I start then to, to categorize this, this narrative. And um, when I had done that, I could already uh, see that certain of many of my, or a lot of the data, uh, did not fit the, uh, the conventional history of the Naga. So I could find several new, new And these, this data that I, I embedded into the regional and into more or less close or imperial history. So I have let's say three layers of of historical narratives and and wherever I had no real uh explanation I, I draw on comparative cases like the headhunting cases, the, the all those famous headhunting cases in the dark. Just to understand headhunting what it has also to look at other cases somewhere else. And the uh, you understand the British conquest, one has to understand the history of the British Empire, obviously. And when one does that, when one compares the different times when the British invaded or retreated from the Nagas with the general development of the empire, one can, one can see that the Naga hills were always, always in line with the rest of, um, the empire's history. This is very important because most of the authors that write on Naga Hill draw on two uh, historical books written by British officers, of course. Mm-hmm. They're supposedly only collections of, of um, uh, official material, but this material they take, of course, as facts, which they are not, in which the uh, those who use these two collections always also have used those facts, which you cannot do. So one, that is why it came that the Nagas were blamed for their own conquest for the principle, because it was always claimed that they raided the plains, that they raided the plains in ever higher, uh, in, in greater numbers and more often and so on. And when one of them compares the 
devices and often either killed whole populations themselves or left them to hostile neighbors to be killed. So it was a heavily, it was nothing gentleman-like about that. And during their partial, it was always an partial of them during their occupation, the Naga Hills, because of all the diseases the British brought in, and because of all the forced labor they put on the Naga, the Naga Hills themselves, and also, and because we only have the descriptions of the British officers, in the descriptions of the officers on the spot, uh, became a definite show of Jesus, uh, poverty, and of lack of self-esteem of the people there themselves. And maybe because there's another myth, so it was always the, the Indian government and the Indian authors and, the, and in their succession of political science ones, they always claimed that the British, the British wanted the, the Nagas to be independent after uh, the transfer of power. This was never the case. It has never been the case. They wanted to have some safeguards for them. They wanted to speak for the Nagas, but they never wanted them to be independent or even to speak for themselves. So there, the British imperialists and the new Indian masters, they were uh, agreeing to that. So this one could, this one can very clearly see when reading the communications so one can find in the Pitts Library on handwritten uh, papers that there was never there was never one moment when the British wanted the Nagas to be independent again, although many of some of the soldiers that had fought in the Naga Hills during the Second World War and you know the well the decisive battles in Asia and the Asian uh, the second that were happening fought in the Naga, that allegedly the British promised the Nagas for some support independent after the war, which never uh, was fulfilled, of course. Uh, so, how did the Nagas react to, you know, changing British policies towards them and, you know, to successive, like, you know, British government? Yeah, could you repeat that, please? Yeah, yeah, sure, definitely. So how did the Nagas like react to, you know, changing British policies towards them, you know, from initial contact with the time, you know, of the establishment of a former British administration in the hills, you know, and to successive, you know, to officers, to successive governments. Basically, what was the Naga reaction in terms of their engagement with the British? In the, in the, uh, in the beginning, they resisted the British ferociously. But then the Nagas, because they were, as, as Renato Ronaldo had described uh, on the, the longer, they, they, because they were politically free, they did not sacrifice people in battle. So when they saw that the British were, were stronger, they somehow tried to uh, appease, them, appease them or accommodate themselves with them. But because in the beginning they believed that they would leave again. Because there was never anyone before had to try to stay in the hills. So in the beginning, the first reaction was was uh, 
resistance, fierce resistance, then appeasement and promises of good conduct. And when they uh, realized that they wouldn't leave the British, then again resistance. After the Nagas were defeated completely, and there were uh, in the 40s, and then again at the end of the, in the 1840s, and then again in the 1870s, uh, there was heavy fighting. And then always on the fringes of the, of the uh, area that had been administrated by the British, there was also heavy fighting. But the British, because they had no real interest in the Naga against themselves, but a strategic one, they, and because of the, uh, the uh, doctrine, the theory of empire, of, of racism and superiority, the Nagas had to remain different, and because they wanted to have a cheap administration, the British uh, had a very rather light administration, which gave the Nagas the possibility somehow to accommodate themselves with the administration. And, and, and as you can imagine, they were most of the Nagas never saw some British or any British. And many of the Nagas maybe were not even aware of the British presence. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the other thing I said I said before, British officers always warned not to impose too much forced labor on the Nagas, not to because the Nagas openly said, if you force us to do that, we will resist, we will fight again. And the British government was always afraid of fighting too much because it was simply too expensive. Um, so due to this relatively light administration, which outlawing headhunting, of course, building down defense structures, um, which, which left the Nagas partially to themselves over a long period, which only came uh, slowly, and one didn't know the end or what the outcome. So the Nagas, we cannot, we shouldn't make a mistake to to um, uh, to think they knew what we are knowing now. So they never knew what was happening. They they never thought they would stay, and they were always thinking, oh, they will soon leave because no one, uh, no one else uh, wanted ever to to, to stay. Plus, the practice practice of imperialism back then had been more uh, acceptable than uh, it is today. So, and you also mentioned, uh, I think, early on in the introduction that the, that colonialism as such was inconsequential in terms of, you know, its impact on the lifestyle, I guess, of, for the mass of the Nagas, yeah. who, who were only sensitized to their elite concerns by the Second World War. So, could you tell us something about the impact of the Second World War on, you know, British-Naga relations? Yeah, so, as I said, the light administration of, of, col- of colonial rule uh, didn't uh, didn't create any any other to create a Naga nation against, or did not uh, create the uh, impact for the the normal Naga to now say okay now we should mobilize and follow our leaders and so on because. 
outside world uh, was still not seen as very consequential. Although, during the First World War, several thousand Nagas, also from the non-administrated area, or maybe especially from the non-administrated area, had been as labor corps on the battlefields of Europe. And but when the Second World War came to the Naga Hills, the Allies, the Americans, especially the British, they opened, they really opened up the uh, the northeast the Naga. As you know, first the refugees came when the Burmese suddenly appeared in in Burma, then the uh, British expeditionary corps, the Indian Army, in the service of the British. And other refugees flooded through the Naga Hills and plundered the Naga villages, according to, to the sources. Then the Japanese came, and on the other on the other side, the Americans were pushing uh, communication lines to the Naga Hills, building also close to Imphal an airfield and flying in massive material, and with hundreds of flights per day. So this changed. And the fierce fighting in the aftermath, this changed, of course, the now the Naga saw uh, what the outside world uh, was was able to do. So now, uh, that is according to the authors. Now, maybe we can imagine that this is true. Now, the Nagas were open to the few of their political leaders to mobilize themselves, because now, now everything has changed. One had to organize, or could not stay alone. One had to organize in a night, in a nation, to defend oneself against the outside world. That was the impact of the Second World War more than uh, the time of colonialism. Obviously, after the Second World War, the next big event was the British withdrawal from the subcontinent. So, what effect did this have on the Nagas? For the Nagas, for the, uh, the Naga elite, uh, there was a certain disillusion uh, because they they must have read Neil, and uh, mm-hmm. still even 1944, Neil said that uh, certain areas that did formally, obviously, did not belong to any Indian state, where after a time of 10 years, interim period of 10 years, allowed to leave the Indian Union, and that is why they proposed themselves that. They said, okay, we will, uh, after 10 years in the room period, and then we will, we will see whether we leave the Union. And then they got all kind of contradicting signals, and in the end, they realized that all the safeguards, all the promises, all the interim periods, that was not true, that they had no say, and that the Indians first were decided to keep the Naga Hills and were decided to decide for the Nagas and not let the Nagas decide. But in the very beginning of the transfer of power, after the transfer of power, nothing much had changed. It needed through some years uh, until the when, when then the, uh, the administrators and the, and the armed personnel that must have been around, around 1950 uh, came into the Naga Hills. And then, then an effective contact with uh, would-be administrators and rulers was 
from all others, and and with that, then the the resistance, and uh, because um, as it has happened in the whole of the post-colonial world, uh, the new Marxists now uh, behave worse often than the old Marxists. They 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 have been suppressed before or oppressed and looked down now. They wanted to look down on others, and they did that. And this, of course, that hit back uh, the what Schiller has said the defense trick of nationalism hit back. And the Nagas resisted. First, they took the example of Gandhi's uh, non-violent, non-cooperation. And then, because the um, then in charge in the Afghanis administration made Answered with violence, they wanted to to uh, intimidate the Nagas with uh, with a tough policy, with force. Uh, then the Nagas answered, organized themselves, and beat back. Which in the end, uh, despite several uh, approaches from the side of the Nagas, with despite several requests for. Or new confederation, which then resulted in, in Nehru uh, sending the army in 1953 after he had been humiliated by the Nagas when he visited the Nagas. Um, it gave the, the army a free hand, which made it worse. This is again in line with uh, so many other uh, post colonial countries like Burma, what happened thereafter. Uh, colonization, Indonesia, uh, etc. Um, you've actually mentioned the existence of a political Indo-Assamese elite. So the point here is that it wasn't like, you know, just the Nagas in the region who were resisting the Indian state. It was also like, you know, the other groups in the Northeast. So how did the Nagas actually relate to these groups, you know, the Khasis, the Mizos, I mean, the Manipuris? Yeah, I can. I haven't. I haven't quite understood now the the, the real question. I, I mentioned the the Hindu Assamese elite. Yeah, I, I was just wondering, like uh, the Naga, like resistance to like you know mainstream Indian rule. That was like just one of the many uh, independence or like you know freedom movements that was going on in the northeast. But there were others like you know the Mizos, the Khasis, the Manipuris. So how did like the Nagas actually coexist with these other groups? You know, because these groups were also fighting for you know fighting to break away from the Indian state. So what was the relationship between all these other groups in the northeast and the Nagas? Uh, at the moment, I'm, I actually don't know. I think they are in a, in a, in a, in a rivalry now. They are all kind of um, of say of of, of rivalries and. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, at the moment, I don't know. I know that in the uh, the sixties, Galbraith, the ambassador of Kennedy, he had traveled the northeast. Because of the threat of the Chinese invasion, and he already sent a communication to um, mm -hmm. to uh, Kennedy to say that there are next to the Nagas quite a lot of groups that seriously want to get out of the uh, Indian Union. And and back then, as you mentioned, it started in uh, 
so much in rivalry with each other that no single group could reach a solution at the center. And I think this is a this is a deliberate outcome of mm-hmm. of the policy of divide and rule of mm-hmm. of uh, protracting uh, a conflict of co-opting a single person's to power and confidence. Uh, that is sometimes celebrated in the political science literature as as, as a good uh, way of resolving conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, uh, you were just talking about the immediate post-independence policy of the Indian state, but you devote a lot of space to post-Nehruvian policies towards the Northeast, you know, and towards the Nagas. Could you tell us something about those? Yeah, post-Nehruvian Nehru, to give him credit, he in the very end, he may have he may have been he may have been willing to negotiate something more substantial. But then in the, the post Nehruvian era, uh, the Indian state after it had there was a there was a ceasefire negotiated in the sixty four and then uh, the um, the Indians had a lot of other areas of conflict with Pakistan, the other conflicts in the Northeast, and in uh, the aftermath of the uh, Chinese uh, invasion. And then slowly, when the when India had rebuilt the army and strength, it started again uh, an aggressive policy towards the Naga Hills, which then ended with, uh, or not really ended with the Shillong Accord, or let's say a, a kind of a, a rather maybe the, the Naga resistance had been pretty much peaking until it regrouped into the NSCN and then NSCN. Uh, so it was another it was a policy of force uh, mm-hmm. until the end of the nineteen uh, until nineteen ninety. Organizations spearheading, like you know, the Naga engagement with the Indian state. They had been so, but yeah. But uh, at the moment, I'm, I, I think what I, what I could see in the end was that the the NSCN was the the Nagas were maybe not satisfied with the with the NSCN, and there were always groups like inside the Nagas who said, ah, oh, it's mm-hmm. it's Chankul, like certain tribes are dominating the NSCN, but at the mm-hmm. same time. What I could realize in the end is that, the, that next to the NSEN or mm-hmm. besides the NSEN, mm-hmm. a kind of civil society was growing mm-hmm. that demanded from the NSEN but also from the Indian side to respect more uh, the human rights. This is what what one can. Uh, Witness when one reads the reports from the Northeast, and I asked uh, some Nagas, and they they were saying, yes, yes, students, mothers, women organizations were uh, gaining in force and strength, and and there with forcing forcing these armed parties uh, more to respect 
are certain rules. Uh, you mentioned that you traveled to Bangkok to talk to some of the NSCN representatives. How was the experience? What well, the experience was that I could talk for nearly two weeks uh, with uh, Weaver, the uh, back then he was the general secretary of the NSCN, and got via his personal history of of the Naga Hills, well, his view of. of of the Naga history, and uh, well, he made on me he made the impression of, of, of someone who is seriously concerned uh, about about the Naga maybe Naga nation or the Uh, we had 
actually discussed uh, James Scott. I mean, he talks about the northeast of India, upland Southeast Asia as being a sort of zone where the state does not really, you know, impinge upon the lives of the people that they prefer to stay out of contact of what we understand as formal state structures. So, would you say that is actually true in the case of the Nagas in general? I mean, and the Indian Northeast as such. I think one has one one has missed a, a big chance by not respecting their or a big fruitful opportunity not to find out and respect local forms of government and integrate them really into yes. a, into a, uh, a self-determined soul in which these people could rule themselves and in which maybe examples and models existed that could. Uh, be also a model for other areas uh, in the world to how to organize democracy or, or whatever we understand. Uh, so I think there we have this is one of the the tasks maybe for for historical anthropologists or anthropologists mm-hmm. to find out these ways of coexistence or existence without central rule or with as much democracy as possible. And that is what I what I thought I could read in all sorts of the British in the beginning they uh, complained about the total democracy which was gaining uh, in these hills and that this was not good. One should one should impose uh, an authoritarian a good government. Nowadays they invade countries to give their democracy. So you see, it's, there, there have been a whole world of alternative ways of life, also the political, that have been destroyed. And uh, this is also a shame. Um, so, would you say that your future research would explore some of these aspects? Or what do you see yourself working on? Well, my future research, what I can do, what I want to do is to focus on the on those elites that have under had and still undertake uh, this conquest, which in the end produced all the war and the misery, and to try to understand them. Because I think there is a continuity. I mean, there are, you know, the British behaved in the way and like the Indians later on behaved. There is no big difference. When I asked here my uh, government or my foreign uh, foreign service, they pretty much support the Indian standpoint. So they they are the same. When I go to academic conferences or read the academic books, they take the sides of power as well. So here it's there is a kind of uh, uniformity. General agreement among the elites, among the power elites, and I try to understand why. I try to, I want to try to understand what that is because I think like that I relate, I show what has happened in the Naga Hills has also a potential threat for us here. We see that in Europe with the um, with the loss of. Uh, Democratic practice in the last 30 years. So actually, we had only 
mm-hmm. maybe 30 years off, something which could be described as democracy nowadays. We're losing that. In India, you can see what Burke had said about the British Empire, that if you behave at the periphery like that, it'll come back. And in India, you see that the, the, uh, the Maxwell Life, the winning the cities, a large part of the population is not treated as human beings. Yeah. So, so there is no no difference to the market. And yeah. uh, I try to understand why someone, I mean, that maybe sounds naive, but the question is, why, is, why does someone want to tell other people mm-hmm. what to do? And I use, maybe I can, yeah. I, I, as a starting point, theoretically, I use the uh, critical theory of Frankfurt School. Uh, well, that was fascinating, and uh, I mean, that's actually very insightful, but I'm afraid you've taken up a lot of your time. But one final question before I let you go. I mean, what do you think the future holds for Nagaland? <laughs> I think it will be more misery and despair. They will be, because they are so powerless, they will be neglected and dissolved, and they will end up um, like so many peripheral zones in the post-colonial colonial world, they either migrate somewhere else or there won't be a decent life. But I think there's not, not much good. Uh, yeah, that is actually a depressing note on which to end an interview. But in this case, I'd be inclined to agree with you, yeah, that you are right about this. <laughs> because I don't really see, I mean, that much progress being made, I mean, in respect to the Northeast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah one, one, one can see that in other areas of the world, too, the peripheral areas will be exploited, and that's it. Anyway, I think we should just uh, hope for the best, and uh, thanks very much for giving your time to the New Books Network, and it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tara, uh, for giving this opportunity. Stove box. That was a facet of South Asia that not many know about. It is not just in the pages of Kipling that people think Darjeeling is a port on the Bengal Ocean. Come up into the hills and pay the Northeast a visit. You will not be disappointed. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>